You are listening to audio from Summit Community Church. You can join us Sunday mornings at 10.30 a.m. on our YouTube channel at SCC Morganton. Well, good morning. If you do have a copy of God's Word, we'll be in Mark chapter 9. And as you're turning there, let me just say welcome. My name's Nate Aiken. I've been with you guys before. I was here five years ago, uh, and five years ago when I was here, I was not married uh, and had no children. I'm now married. I have a two-year-old. We actually got in town last night. My, my wife is here with me, uh, and we stayed in the hotel room here, and for some reason, my two-year-old did not want to let us sleep last night. So I'm operating on about three hours of sleep, uh, but uh, it was a joy to study this text. So it, it seems like either the Prince of Darkness doesn't want me to preach this sermon, but certainly my two-year-old doesn't want me to preach this sermon today. But it has been fun to study it. Pastor Mike gave me this text, and it's one of those things, when you study a text and it ends up con- convicting you, that, that's, that's something. So when I get a chance to talk to Pastor Mike, I'm going to tell him thanks a lot uh, for doing that. But it is a wonderful text that we're looking at this morning. You know, we're actually almost two-thirds of the way through 2022, which is amazing. But if you think about it, at the beginning of a new year, we become obsessed with healthy living. And that sort of wanes by the time we get uh, to to mid-August. But we become obsessed with healthy bodies. And by by we, I, I don't mean me, as you can tell. By we, I mean American culture. You know, we're told at the beginning of a new year to, to exercise daily. We're told to get lots of sleep. We're told to, to eat whole foods, told to eat organic foods, which is just a code word for expensive. We're told to eat kale. As Ron Swanson points out, kale is simply the food that my food eats. Some tell us not to eat processed food, which means no bagel bites. And even some have begun an assault on bacon itself. We are living in the last days indeed. But what I want us to be reminded of this morning is something that the Apostle Paul says somewhere else. He says this, that while bodily training is of some value, that godliness is of value in every way. And what I want to look at this morning, and we see in Mark chapter 9, is an aspect of godliness that we may not always attach to godliness. In fact, it is an astonishing trait that we could say this of God, think of godliness and to think of it in the terms of something that we call humility. In fact, in the text before us this morning, we will see the, the countercultural, upside down to our way of thinking, nature of the kingdom of God rather than the kingdom of men. But as we do, we will certainly in this text encounter the gospel as we hopefully more fully understand what it means for a God to come down to save human beings, to save men and women like us, to rescue us. And so it is an incredible text, one that I pray that, that as it has worked on me, that, that my my study, it will indeed be for your benefit as well. I do want to read a couple of those verses again, just so they will stick in our mind. Then I'm going to pray and ask for God's help again. Look at Mark chapter 9 and verse 35. And our brother Mark writes this as he's carried along by the Holy Spirit. And he sat down and called the twelve, and he said to them, if anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. And he took a child and he put them in the midst of them, and taking him in his arms, he said to them, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. Let's pray and ask for God's help. Father, thank you for your word. 
Do pray now as we peer into Mark chapter 9. Father, would you show us yourself? Father, would you show us our sin? And then, Father, would you show us our Savior? Father, now will you please sanctify us in the truth? We know your word is truth. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. What makes someone great? Or historically, what has made people great in the past? You know, in our world, it seems to be connected to, to wealth, to power. Inextricably, it seems to be connected to how many social media followers you have. Greatness or fame seems to be attached to how well you can sing or if you can act incredibly or even in our world, if you can gain fame by doing something silly on YouTube. It's gained by, greatness is kind of judged by whether you can put a round ball in a round hoop. As a college basketball player myself, I, I tend to think that's a pretty cool thing. Or taking an oblong pigskin football across a goal line seems to be great. I will say if that person carrying the ball across the goal line is wearing a Georgia Bulldog uniform, it is great. Or if the person putting the round ball in the hoop is wearing a UNC jersey and not a Duke jersey, that's great. Can I get an amen? <laughs> but throughout history, certain leaders have been considered great. Even as we think 2,000 years from this man, when we say the word Alexander, almost all of us immediately think the word great. But that raises the question, what does make one great? You know, to our way of thinking, the text before us this morning would not at all seem to answer that question, and yet Jesus comes along and talks about an aspect of greatness that flips the wisdom of the world on its head because we will see God's ways are not our ways. In fact, in this text, we will encounter the countercultural way of the kingdom of Christ as Jesus will tell His disciples that true greatness... Greatness in the eyes of the very one who matters comes not by sitting at the head of the table, but rather by being a servant of all. In fact, true greatness is not necessarily found in wearing Alexander's crown. Instead, it is found in picking up the servant's rag. Now, here's the context of where we find ourselves in Mark's gospel. Jesus has now set his face like flint toward Jerusalem. He is headed to the cross, and we pick up here what is a discipleship discourse from Jesus, where he will again predict his impending death, but also his resurrection. And then we will see what follows this prediction are instructions. Again, instructions that are counterintuitive to this world, as Jesus will tell his disciples that true greatness, and this is mind-boggling to me, true greatness is found in picking up a death instrument. And true greatness is found in being, instead of the one at the head of the table, the one who serves the table. In fact, we might say it like this, that true greatness is found in a crown of thorns rather than a crown of gold. Yeah, this is exactly what Jesus is about to put before his disciples, and by extension, he's going to put before us. He pulls them to the side, and in a world that tells us that everything should be about us, Jesus is going to tell us that actual greatness is found in looking out for the interest of others. Now, my main idea is this, and I think it just comes right out of the text. The main idea is this. True greatness comes through humility and discipleship. And basically, I'm just going to break down that main idea. And we see first discipleship. We see a preview of true greatness. Look again at verse 30. Mark writes this. They went on from there and passed through Galilee, and he did not want anyone to know, for he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him, and when he is killed, after three days he will rise. But they did not understand the saying, and they were afraid to ask him. 
Jesus' ministry continues, and he doesn't want the, the normal fanfare that surrounds him. Instead, as he has set his sights toward Jerusalem, he wants to focus in on this group of 12, these, these disciples. He wants to teach them, and he's now about to instruct them about his mission, and then what will, by extension, become their mission. Jesus presses in on what is expected of him as he follows the one, as we have read, who has sent him, and then what will then be required of those who are his followers, what he will require of them. And we see here good discipleship from Jesus. One pastor simply defines discipleship like this. It is intentionally doing spiritual good for others. And Jesus is a good disciple maker. He takes time to, to teach them by beginning to highlight the humility of discipleship, this, this humility that comes through serving and following somebody else. And we will see that this humility ultimately involves both suffering and sacrifice. Now, this is the second time in his gospel that he will tell them what is about to happen to him once he gets to Jerusalem, that he will be crucified, that he will be killed, and he will be resurrected. But here, this second time, he adds a new piece of information. In fact, it is a stunning piece of information that not only will he be killed, but he will be betrayed so that he is killed. He will be indeed handed over to this killing. In this scene, Jesus continues to use the title Son of Man for himself. In fact, he does that 84 times in the gospel. He is making a declaration to his disciples of his, his identification with humanity, but, but more than that, with his identification of the man of Daniel 7, to whom God will hand over all authority and all glory and all rule in establishing a kingdom that will smash all others. And yet the irony of it all, in keeping with the theme of this text, this son of man from Daniel 7 is here connected to the suffering servant of Isaiah 53 as he will ascend to his throne, not by might and not by power, he will ascend to his throne by being betrayed, as literally this Daniel 7 king will be handed over by men to men in order to be killed. And yet, brothers and sisters, we know this is God's plan all along. Jesus is a faithful son who is gladly carrying out the will of his Father for the, the glory of God and also for the good of humanity. Jesus here is a good teacher because Jesus is about to root what he's going to teach the disciples. He, he roots it in the gospel. In light of what he is about to teach them, he wants them to see the kind of Messiah that he is going to be as he is going to set images of glory and suffering together. He is going to do this in order to radically reorient their concept of greatness. Indeed, he is going to be a Messiah who will receive his crown by way of a cross. And yet they still don't get it. In fact, in Luke's parallel account, it indicates they were concealed from knowing what Jesus was saying to them. And so let's do the best we can, if, if, if we can, really just to put ourselves in the scene, to put ourselves in the shoes of the disciples. One pastor in New York likened this scene to this, a political candidate who is running for president telling his campaign managers and his campaign staff that towards the end of the election, that not only is he going to lose, he is going to be assassinated. That's what Jesus is telling his disciples. It's hard for us to grasp. I mean, we know the end of the story. We know the rest of the story. And these apostles, they did believe in resurrection, but they believed in a resurrection that would come at the end of time. 
They had no concept for a resurrection that would break into the current age. And who can blame them for that? I mean, we don't see that every day, right? It's, we don't see resurrection every day. Indeed, that is why we, 2,000 years later, are gathering every single Sunday to celebrate this act, to celebrate the resurrection. Indeed, because it does not happen every day. Because it is glorious. Because it is shocking to the way of thinking. Once the resurrection does happen, it does all change for the disciples. Once it happens, they look back on this teaching and it all begins to make sense. Once they see the end of the story, the other parts start to make sense. But at this point, they still don't get it. And their lack of comprehension, it says in the, seems in the text, is only matched by their fear. They're afraid to ask him to even clarify what he is saying. They may even be sitting there thinking, what does he mean? Oh, I got it. Let's get Peter. You know, Peter likes to put his foot in his mouth. Let's get Peter to go ask him. And Peter's sitting there thinking, you know, in the previous chapter, I did the rebuke thing, and you saw how that went. I'm staying quiet. One commentator speaking on these verses says this, they understood enough to be afraid of understanding more. And this raises something, I think, by way of application for us this morning, something for us to consider. And that is this, discipleship itself is inherently carrying a connotation of humility. Because discipleship by necessity means you are not the one. You are not the goal. Someone else is the goal. Someone else is worthy of being followed. Someone else is worthy of emulation. And he is showing us the path of true greatness. Which leads to the second part of the text. We've seen discipleship and a preview of true greatness. Now we see humility, which is the posture of true greatness. Look at verse 33. And when they came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he asked them, what were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent, for on the way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. And he sat down and he called the twelve and he said to them, if anyone would be first, he must be last of all and he must be servant of all. Jesus knows these disciples need more discipleship even after telling them of the cross. So here's the scene. They're likely back at Peter's house in Capernaum and Jesus asked them, what was it you guys were debating along the way? And Jesus asked this question, not out of ignorance. He asked it in order to set up a teachable moment. I mean, consider what is going on here. Here is the group upon which he is going to entrust the future mission of the gospel to. And instead of them asking him, who is it that's going to hand you over? Who is it that's going to betray you? Instead, they are fighting with one another about which one of them will be considered the greatest. It appears they just aren't getting what Jesus is putting down. And if you've been walking through the gospel of Mark, it is further evidence they still see Jesus as a political liberator. They still see him as a earthly king. They have, these, they have these dreams of seats of power in the coming earthly kingdom. It is clear that they have not all understood what he has said earlier in chapter 9, that instead of taking up a crown, they must take up a cross. And the question is, do we understand that teaching? Brothers and sisters, I think there's much I could say here by way of application particularly in 2022 America, that we just maybe don't have time for, or maybe it's not even my place as a guest preacher. But especially in our day of American politics, which they're not unimportant, they're very important. But we must understand that American politics are temporary in nature. Whether we're talking about power or talking about being liberated, both of these things will mean nothing in the age to come. 
The disciples, as it were, had been caught with their hand in the cookie jar. And he asked them the question, and it says in the text, they do not even answer him. You know, this, this happened to me a lot as a kid. I mean, you can, you can see my, my nice figure, but my first word besides mama and dada was cookie. So I often was caught with my hand in the cookie jar. My two-year-old Ada oftentimes is asking for cookies. But we've all had that moment, right, when we were children, when our parents ask us a question and we kind of calculate in our heads, is it better for me to be quiet or to answer the question? I, I don't know if your parents were like mine, but my dad would often ask me, like when I did something wrong, what do you think your punishment should be? And here was always the calculation in my head. If I give a light punishment as an answer, is it going to offend him and he's going to give me a harsher punishment? Or if I give a harsh punishment, is he going to agree with me and give me the harsh punishment? And so the calculation in my head is, I'm just going to be quiet and let him work this out. That's sort of what's happening here in the text. And Jesus is going to use this as a teachable moment to instruct them in the ways of the kingdom. Again, that's opposite, radically opposite of the way of this world. He is going to radically redirect their thinking. We have to get this this morning. He has previously said in this chapter, the one who will gain his life is the one who will lose it. Now he sets before them another paradox. The one who would be first must instead be the one who is last. This teaching again flows from the reality of the sort of Messiah he is. And because this is who he is, this is who his people are to be as well. Ones marked by a kingdom ethic of humility and love and service. So again, let's try to put ourselves in the scene. Let's try to imagine What's happening? Let's try to apply this to our lives in 2022 America. Just imagine this. He has just told you he is going to be betrayed and he is going to be violently killed. And after he tells you this, the first thing you can think about is arguing with your brothers about which one of you will be the greatest. Which one of us will sit in the seats of power? And Jesus comes along in verse 35 and he tells them, True greatness does not come from jockeying for position. It does not come from gaining fame. It does not come from fantasizing about the seats of honor and power. Instead, there is a position you should aspire to. There is something you should grasp for, but it is the position of the deacon. It is the position of the servant. You should be, seek to be the one who is serving at the table rather than sitting at the head of it. This is the way of greatness. Again, it is so counterintuitive to our world, a world which says, we deserve this and we deserve that. We deserve to be waited on hand and foot. I mean, my wife can tell you, if our food doesn't come out in what I deem to be an appropriate time, I start to get antsy. I start to get hangry sometimes. I start to get upset. And yet we must meditate on this this morning as we hope for a revival of selfless servants in our generation of desiring to be served, in our generation of desiring recognition. You might say like this, in a selfie generation, may we remember that we follow a crucified king who indeed reigns from a cross. Crucifixion was a way of throwing away somebody and acting like they were nothing. And this is what Jesus willingly picked up for our benefit and for our good. And he now drives this home with an illustration. Verse 36, he took a child and put him in the midst of them and taking him in his arms, he said to them, 
Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. He continues to teach them by this child he puts basically in his lap. And I want to be clear about what Jesus is saying. Jesus is not saying that children are an example of humility. My two-year-old came in here. The first thing she did was grab the microphone down there because she doesn't have any problem being up in front of people. Go to Target. You'll find out kids have no problem being the center of attention. No, instead, Jesus is saying that the receiving of these children is a sign of humility, and he's going to tell us why. At first, we may not get this. You know, it's a hard illustration for us to get because we live in a culture, at least outside the womb, that values children. I mean, we have things like Disney World. That's for children, by the way. I don't know who needs to hear that this morning. But in the disciples' day, children were not treated well at all. Especially in the Greek and Roman cultures, oftentimes children would be abandoned on trash heaps. So Jesus' illustration would have been striking to them. What Jesus is trying to teach a group of men who have just been fighting over which one would have the standing and the status and the prestige, he's trying to teach them to be servants. And what he is doing is he is saying, true greatness is found in receiving those who have no standing, who have no prestige. And indeed, it is by serving those who are considered the lowest in the social power order that you receive true greatness. He is saying, serve those who cannot do anything to add to your status when you serve them. Serve those who cannot do anything for you really in return. Serve those who are completely reliant upon your kindness and your service and your sacrifice, like a child, like an adopted child. And realize when you do, listen to the promise, when you do, you're not only just receiving that child, you're receiving Jesus and you're receiving the one who has sent Jesus. If we were to be great, we must understand that we need to give of our time to those who are regarded by this world as insignificant. And yet they're the very ones who are the heirs of the kingdom. So let's think on these amazing verses by way of application this morning. Again, if we're, if we're to be great, not in the eyes of the world, but ultimately in the eyes of the very one who matters, we will be Philippians 2 servant Christians. Paul will tell the church at Philippi, in humility, Count others more significant than yourselves. Look not only to your own interests, but look to the interests of others. The irony of the kingdom is the very ones who will be lifted up on the final day are those who do not care to be lifted up right now. The ones who will have great honor in the life to come are the very ones who do not have prestige and status or care if they have it now. I'm telling you, this text has worked on me. Now, ask myself questions, some of them may be on the screen. Do I long to be in the privileged places? Do I long to be seen by others? Do I serve in certain ways just to serve or because I know even that service will give me recognition? One of the things that's hit me is that I need to understand in the ways of the kingdom Greatness is found not necessarily in doing what I'm doing right now, preaching in front of a bunch of people. Instead, greatness is found in the workers in the child care wing who are changing my daughter's diaper. They're doing that so we can come in here and, and corporately gather together for worship. The text raises more questions like, 
how do we treat or even view those that either are or we perceive are under us? Let me try to make it pointed and maybe very practical. Would we jump at the opportunity? Think about somebody you esteemed. Like for me, would I jump at the opportunity to serve or do something for Michael Jordan? And by the way, Michael Jordan is better than LeBron James. has nothing to do with the sermon. It just needs to be said. But the question is, would I jump at the opportunity to serve him but find excuses to not serve or do something for the widow or the single mom in my congregation? And hear the promise of the text. If we pursue humble service for others, especially for those who can do nothing for us in return, Jesus is saying we will have fellowship with somebody much greater than Michael Jordan. In fact, we will have fellowship with the very one who has created him. John will say it like this in 1 John, that we indeed will have fellowship with the Father and with His Son. This is tough teaching. I mean, the question for us needs to be, how in the world, in a, in a world like this, where this kind of thinking is so countercultural, how is this even possible? And the truth is left to ourselves, it is impossible, which is why we need the power and the example and the work of another, and we even need the forgiveness of somebody else when we fail. Indeed, Jesus is a phenomenal teacher, as He is not just a teacher of the Word, He is a doer as well. He, does, he practices what He preaches. In fact, He will put a punctuation on the end of this teaching as He will walk this out in His own example. Jesus does not just tell us to be a servant of all. Instead, He shows us what this means by walking the Calvary road. And that's where we must look. To the meek and mild and lowly Nazarene of whom it was we said, can anything good come from Nazareth? To the one who would help those who could not help themselves, the one who has come and set his affections upon us who were orphans. The one who, though he was in the form of God, did not account equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he, he emptied himself. He became a servant, a selfless servant who would take the ultimate sacrifice in our places. He has come as a ransom for many who sought the interests of others above his own. And he becomes in that moment at the cross, he becomes our sin bearer. The only sinless one stands in the place of sinners at the cross as hour after hour, the judgment of God do our sins and our rebellion and our wickedness touches down upon him. And in this moment, he satisfied the wrath of God against us, against our sin. He gives over to us a righteousness that is not our own, appeases the punishment that is ours. He then is raised from the dead and vindicated. And just consider how radical that is. Consider how staggering that is because consider who it is that has done that for us. It is God Himself. Listen to how the great Baptist preacher R.G. Lee speaks of the incarnation and think this is the one who has died for you. It is magnificent as it, pro it promotes for us His humility. Here's what he says. Christ, who in eternity rested motherless upon the Father's bosom, and in time rested fatherless upon a woman's bosom, clasping the Ancient of Days who had become the Infant of Days. What deep descent from the heights of glory to the depths of shame, from the wonders of heaven to the wickedness of earth, from exaltation to humiliation, from the throne to the tree, from dignity to debasement, from 
Worship to wrath. From the halls of heaven to the nails of earth. From the coronation to the curse. From the glory place to the gory place. Listen to this. In Bethlehem, humility and glory in their extremes were joined. Born in a stable. Cradled in a cattle trough. Wrapped in swaddling clothes of poverty. No room for Him who made all rooms. No place for Him who knows all places. Oh, deep humiliation of the Creator born of the creature woman. But in His descent was the dawn of mercy. Because we cannot ascend to Him. He descends to us. It is astounding that the Creator of the universe for the good of those who have rebelled against Him would take on human form. He would become a man. But even more than that, He would take on a cross. This is the Gospel. If you're here and you're not a Christian, This is the message we hold out to you. Jesus, the God-man, perfect, sinless. He will be handed over, even though He has done nothing wrong. He will be crucified and killed for sinners. Three days later, He will rise from the dead, vindicated, meaning His cross can take care of your sin. His resurrection can take care of the final consequence of your sin. Death itself. All you have to do to take hold of what He has done is you have to turn to Him in repentance and faith. And if you do, you will receive a righteousness that is not your own. It will put you in right relationship with God Himself. Take hold of that by faith. And I promise you, if you will do that, God will receive you. He will receive you and care for you and love you as adoptive parents care for an orphan. And brothers and sisters, I hope we see... This morning, those of us who are Christians, I hope we see with eyes of faith true greatness. That's why I want to close with this poem from a man named Charles Ross Weed entitled Jesus and Alexander. Here's what he writes. Jesus and Alexander died at 33. One lived and died for self. One died for you and me. The Greek died on a throne. The Jew died on a cross. One's life a triumph seen. The other but a loss. One shed a whole world's blood, the other gave his own. One won the world in life and lost it all in death. The other lost his life to win the whole world's faith. Jesus and Alexander died at 33. One died in Babylon. One died on Calvary. One gained all for himself and the other himself he gave. One conquered every throne, the other every grave. Jesus and Alexander died at 33. The Greek made all men slaves. The Jew made all men free. One built a throne on blood, the other on love. One was born of earth, the other from above. One won all the earth to lose all earth and heaven. The other gave up all so that all to him be given. The Greek forever died, the Jew forever lives. He loses all who gets and wins all things who gives. Brothers and sisters, true greatness is found in understanding that the last will be first that the humble will be exalted and lifted up. And true greatness is found in understanding that glory is only found at the end of the Calvary road. As we seek this sort of posture of humility, no one may even recognize it. In fact, recognition may take a long, long time. It may even take until that day when you finally see your Savior face to face and He says to you, well done, my good and faithful servant. Let's pray and ask for the Lord Jesus to give us that kind of humility. Father, we know your word is powerful. 
We know, Father, that your word is able to make us wise into salvation through faith in the Lord Jesus. Father, I pray for any in this room that don't know him. Would you make them wise this morning? Make them wise unto salvation through faith in the Lord Jesus. And Father, we know for those of us that are Christians that is able to train and instruct us in righteousness. Father, would you do that now by the power of your spirit? Father, it is my prayer that through the singing of the gospel, through the fellowship of the saints, and through the preaching of the word, that we will be changed from one degree of glory to another. Be with us now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for tuning in to this week's sermon. For more information about Summit Community Church, please check out our website at summitchurch.me or on social media on Facebook or Instagram at SCC Morganton.